All right. Are we good? Yeah, decent. Oh, we got one clap. Good. Um, sorry, this, this rug is crooked and my OCD, I'll just stare at it the whole time. That's all I'll do. Um, good to see you guys. Yes. It's good to be. Oh, um, glad you're here. And so, yeah, let's do this. Um, this is our passage today. And uh, we're going to talk about three things. Uh, first off, we're going to start off talking about um, sort of why Paul came to Galatia at all. Um, some, some of these things are incredibly interesting when you actually study the history of how these books came to be written, um, how Paul found these people, and how they met. It's a fascinating story, and I think it may mean something to some of you. Who knows? Um, and, and then we're going to talk about two different things. We're going to talk about um, confrontation, how to confront people, the purpose of it. Um, how to be honest, how to, how to just say, as John Mayer would say, say what you need to say. Um, and then we're going to talk about, you know, I love the 11 o'clock service much better than the 9 o'clock. It's like an empty room. Um, don't tell them. They're great. They're great. Um, and then we're going to talk about uh, the inner circle, right? The, that group of people who's on the inside, and, and you want to be part of that group of people, and, and we're going to destroy that inner circle today. Um, the way Jesus would, would do. So, um, yeah, let's, let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for everything that you were doing in our midst. Thank you for these people. Thank you for bringing us all together here this morning, my brothers and sisters, and, 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 uh, and for giving us a community that we, that we so desperately need in our lives. Thank you for the paths that we're on, all individually and, and, and also collectively. Thank you for the part that we play in this story of, uh, of Christianity and in our city and in each other's lives. Uh, continue to guide us. Open our eyes. Help us to be present this morning. There is nothing, there's nothing out there that we need to be focused on except you, except love, except goodness and grace and mercy and the higher things in this world. So allow us to be present here and nowhere else. Um, Everything is, is good. We're in, we're in a place filled with love and a place of reconciliation. And so let us bask in that this morning. Uh, bring to my memory the things that I've studied so I can communicate clearly. Give me freedom. Allow me to speak clearly and, and not, not feel like any need to hold back in anything. Thank you for what you're doing. In your name, amen. All right. So here we go. Uh, we're going to start right here in what I call 12b. Which is the second half of the verse, because we already talked about the first half, right? It says, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So, um, when you're studying an ancient writing, any ancient writing, several things you need to figure out is, why was it written? It's an important question. Um, it doesn't just exist for no reason. There was a reason um, an ancient letter is written. Um, there's a message that needs to be portrayed. There's a relationship that has a history. You need to know that history. Um, and so a passage like this, there's some things in here that may raise some questions if you're reading carefully, if you are thoughtfully approaching an ancient text. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of my bodily ailment that I preached, to, preached the gospel to you. That right there raises some questions. What's he talking about? Um, what bodily ailment did he have? Um, why is it this, this bodily ailment brought him to speak to these people about this guy, Jesus, this ancient first century rabbi, and about what the ancient Romans called the gospel, the good news of Jesus. What is this? How did this happen? Now, um, there's a lot of places in Scripture that will help us answer these questions. There's a book called 
There's a book called The Acts of the Apostles. If you're not real familiar with, with scriptures, with the Bible, with church, um, the book called The Acts of the Apostles is, is sort of um, a history of exactly what the title says it is. It's the things that the apostles did after Jesus was not with them anymore, how they carried on this message and how they grew this thing into the church that we have today. Um, and it was written by a guy named Luke who wrote another book previously um, called The Good News According to Luke, The Gospel According to Luke. Um, Luke was not a follower of Jesus. It is part of our, originally, I mean, uh, it is part of our, of our scripture. Uh, the, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Luke was originally hired uh, by this guy whom he worked for as uh, sort of um, a historian to go find out what exactly happened with this guy, Jesus. His boss said, hey, I keep hearing about this guy, Jesus, and these people who claim to be followers of this guy, Jesus. I want to know who he is. I'm going to pay you. You go out. You interview all these people. Um, so Luke has this really interesting story where he interviews all these different people, and he writes down, he, hey, here's from all the people that I talked to who knew Jesus, here's what happened. Then... He travels with the apostles, and he writes this book called um, The Act Book of the Acts of the Apostles. Um, and halfway through this book, he stops saying they, and he starts saying we. So he, there's this moment when he becomes a follower of Jesus. It's just fascinating. So if you're a skeptic of scriptures, Luke is your guy. Um, was not a follower of Jesus, studied Jesus, became a follower of Jesus, and he leaves us this story. And in the book of Acts, you have this interesting passage right here in verse, chapter 13, uh, verse 13 and 14. And it's talking about the journey that Paul is taking. Um, and it, it talks about his missionary journey. And there's something right here where it says, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. So to all these ancient cities. It talks about they went here, then they went here, then they went here. Um, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So John is this guy, John Mark. Um, I most of the time will probably refer to him as Mark, probably on accident. Um, same dude. Um, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and, and came to Antioch and Pisidia. So we had this little story about they went here, this guy left, and they did this. And it's just kind of this thing in passing, but if you actually think about this, oh, something happened to make this guy bail on them. There's three guys. It's Paul, it's Barnabas, and it's Mark. And they're traveling together. Apparently something happened in this city, Pamphylia. That caused one of them to run home, disappear, run away, and the other two to go somewhere else. Because what's interesting about Pamphylia is that it's, it's, it's here. We've, we've done a lot of excavation on it. Um, it's a, it was a massive, well-populated, heavily populated city. So the question that biblical scholars have is, well, why did they pass on through? Why didn't they stay there? It's much bigger than where they ended up. Why didn't they stay there and, and teach? Um, the people about Jesus. They, they're trying to gain followers of Jesus, right? They think that this message can change the empire, that it can bring about a more loving world and, and change things in this world for the better. Why didn't they stay here in this city and teach these people this? Apparently something happened. Pamphylia is a, is a coastal city, and it's, it's, it's um, I mean, you can tell by looking at it, it's, it's almost tropical. I mean, it's, it's densely, you know, wooded. Um, and we do know from historians that in the first century, there was this massive epidemic of what we now call malaria all through this area. Um, and so what we end up with is uh, little bits and pieces. Um, they go to this city. One of them runs away, um, and the other two flee in a different direction when they probably sh- were planning on staying. I mean, why else would you go here? And so scholars have, 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 um, want, have come up with several different scenarios um, one likely reason for losing up one person and fleeing the city quickly is because um, of the malaria. 
uh, because sort of this fear or the contraction of, of something that happened. Um, a lot of scholars believe that Paul contracted malaria and fled to the highlands of, of nearby Galatia because this is where he stopped off at Galatia. And Paul writes in his letter, and he says, you know it was because of my bo- a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So he came here because he was sick from something. Um, now, also in this passage, we see some other things that sort of tell us about the illness. Um, uh, so in verse 14, and though my condition was a trial... To you, you did not scorn or despise me. So the, the word despise is this interesting word. Um, it's this word, ekapatio. Everyone say, ekapatio. Okay, it sort of has like, it sort of sounds like what it means. It sounds like spitting, right? It means, it means to spit on. So he's literally saying, and uh, it's nice that you didn't spit on me. And you say, well, why would they spit on What is this? So in the first century, when someone was having an epileptic seizure, um, one of your sort of duties was to spit on them because they believed that epileptic seizures were caused by demon possession and they didn't know that it was this um, actual medical condition that has to do with the brain. And so they would spit on people who had this, uh, trying to either coax the demon away or keep it away from them. You had sort of had this duty to spit on people. And this is sort of a vulgar phrase in, in the ancient Koine Greek. Um, it's sort of a, he says, hey, um, I came to you and I was really sick and you, you didn't scorn me and you didn't spit on me. And these, this, all of this kind of tells us things. There's also another part in scriptures where um, Paul says, I had this thorn in the flesh. And it's sort of the idea of this constant pain. I have a, I have a, a brother in Indonesia as a missionary who had five different types of malaria now. And um, uh, here's how kind of he explains it. Uh, once a month, he gets like 104 degree temperature, um, gets a, a headache, like a drill going into your brain. Um, pretty much passes out for about three days and then wakes up, drinks a bunch of water, and moves on with life. Um, but it doesn't go away. You can set your clock to it. It happens every single, just this pain, blackout, just this pain. It's, it's really bad. And so um, uh, malaria, it affects your vision. It affects everything. There's another part in this passage where Paul says, and you, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. So we have all these little clues. Uh, a lot of scholars have said it's this probably what he was going through. He probably contracted malaria and, and fled to Galatia. Of course, this is all conjecture, but some kind of illness caused them to not stay here, to go to Galatia. So what, what's the point in knowing this? I, I think it's, there's something interesting here that maybe will help some of you understand something. Um, you, ever, you ever ask the question, what is the point of this suffering? Why am I sick? Why am I going through this? What is the meaning of all of this? Is this just, just going to be something that happens to me to cause all kinds of pain in my life and then I'm going to die later? Is there any purpose to this? Is it redeemable at all? Um, I remember hearing, um, there's this pastor in New York City, his name is Timothy Keller. He's a reformed pastor of a Presbyterian church and he's, a, he's written tons of books that have, that have shaped the lives of many, many people and helped a lot of people understand the message of Jesus. And, and uh, he talks about how his grandfather um, was burying his fourth wife. Two of them died from the same disease. And while he's burying her, he's weeping and he's crying and he's trying to figure out what good, Lord, could ever come of this. He was a pastor. He's like, what good could ever come of this? Nothing good could ever come of this. And then he, he, he meets another woman and marries her uh, and gives birth to a son who is the father of Timothy Keller. Two generations later, we, we can kind of put a little bit of meaning on the suffering as painful as it sounds, as difficult as it sounds, Paul, his suffering, his possible malaria and intense pain that drives him to flee 
to lose his companions, to flee to the city, and to find these people who bring him in and take care of him as if he was Christ himself, he says. Um, because of Paul's suffering, we sit here today as a, as a group of people and we study this book. And we gain some insight we never would have gained for the last, what is this, 25 weeks now in this book. The last 25 weeks in this, in this book. Any encouragement that you've gained from this, any life-changing moments that you've gained from our time together came directly from Paul's physical suffering all alone, um, traveling through some place to give some message that he hoped would take hold somewhere. And we like to think of these images as these epic moments, but, but Paul, it's just a guy walking down the street. And, and, and his suffering gives us this. And so there's some hope here that whatever you're going through, it's true, you may never actually see the end of it. You, you, it may change you in a ways that you never come back from. You may not ever be able to really carry on um, at peace again. But that doesn't make your suffering meaningless. It doesn't make it hopeless. It doesn't mean that it won't be used to accomplish anything of meaning and purpose. If nothing else, just to reveal to someone else something they need to see. The message of Christianity is that there's always hope. Things have meaning. Things have purpose. There is, things are heading somewhere. Somewhere good. And that's the hope that we hold on to. Um, Next up, we have verse 15 and 16. It says, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So I want to talk about confrontation because Paul apparently has zero problems confronting people. Um, You all know a Paul, and they have no problem just, Hey, that was pretty dumb what you did two days ago. We haven't talked about this yet. Sit down. Let's talk. (laughs) You ever like you're in a conversation with somebody, and you do something, and you catch somebody's eye, and you're like, okay, we're going to talk about this later, I guess. <laughs> just, keep, just keep moving, pretending everything's cool. Just hope they forget. Paul's that guy. He's, he's writing it all down, and he's confronting you. There's this, Paul's letters are confrontations. Like 90% of, of his letters are confrontations. He's writing to people because he loves them. And he says, hey, you're being super stupid. And, and here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're talking about this. You're being really, really dumb. And, and in 2 Corinthians, he writes this like, brutal letter. It's the second letter. It's actually the third letter. We don't have the second one. Spoiler alert. Um, and so the third letter that we call 2 Corinthians, he writes to these people and he says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. He says, I, I'm, not, I'm not holding back. Maybe you felt this. I'm not holding back. Like, I'm just going to tell you exactly what I think about what you're doing, about how you're living. I'm not going to hold back. I, I'm just going to speak freely to you. We are not withholding our affection from you. He says, not only, am I, not only am I speaking absolutely honest with you, I'm also giving you all the love that I have in the world. I'm doing this from a good place. Um, he says, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. He says, stop holding back. Stop not telling us what you want to tell us. Um, stop hiding the things that you're hiding. What if we were just honest? What if you just told me everything about yourself and I told you everything about myself and then we poked around a little bit at these things? And we said, really, this? How's this going? Do you want to keep this around? Like, why would you respond this way? Why do you allow this to bother you? Why do you think so highly of yourself in this area? It's dangerous. And this is how Paul communicates. Paul's all about the confrontation. And so, 
Um, confrontation, if you look up the, the Latin word of, of confrontation, it simply means to turn your face towards, to look frontally, to look at frontally. Uh, most of us, we don't confront um, because we don't want to do this. We don't want to sort of face the reality of the, of the situation. So it, we sort of turn away from the relationship. To confront means I'm going to move towards the relationship. The relationship means something to me. It has weighted. It's, it's important. And so I'm going to approach the relationship table here that neither of us want to approach. And I'm going to say some things about it, about its health, about its lack of health, about some places where it's kind of gone dark. And I'm going to say it. Um, so basically, it's, it's, you're turning towards something, and you're going to put some focus on it. And you're going to look at it. Most of us don't confront because we're, we're terrified. We have this deep fear of confrontation. Uh, most of that fear is unfounded. Most of it comes because we build this illusion in our minds. You know, what happens is someone offends you, um, and you spend all your time not confronting it. Instead of talking about it in that moment, you don't talk about it. And the longer you go, the, longer, the more you think about it, and then you start thinking about the intention behind what they said. Why would they say that? They must think they're a little better than me. They must look down upon me. They must hate me. They must be trying to kill me. And, and like, this is kind of how it goes. And it gets worse and worse and worse. They're conspiring again. They're trying to get me fired. And like, no, they, yeah, they don't like your shoes. That's all it is. Um, but we build up these monsters in our brain and these monsters become very real to us and we cannot face them. And, and the farther we get from whatever happened, the harder it gets to bring it up because the monster that we make out of them in our minds gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the bigger the monster gets, the less likely we are to confront it. Um, it's, it's incredibly dangerous. I personally know someone who, is, who is, has avoided confronting someone for months and months and months. And then finally, as you do, the monster's so big in your mind, uh, what do you do? You blow up, right? Because it's got to be powerful and you've got to take down the big scary beast that's next to you. And so you blow up and you've just got, you, you're talking about everything. You're talking, and you're like, and then during the Cold War, you said this, I remember. <laughs> I remember because Reagan was giving a speech in the background. That hurt. And, and, you, and you've got everything, and you've got to pile up real high because the monster's terrifying. Um, and then what happens is I, I get these people together, and we all get in one room, and I start talking to them and, and listening. And the person's, and, and you, why didn't you confront this earlier? Well, they're, they're, a, they're a monster. They're out to get me, and, and it would be fruitless because they're just going to explain it all away, and they don't care. And then you get them together and you talk to the person. It turns out they just were absolutely clueless. They had no idea. Just an absolutely normal person, surprisingly. Not a monster at all. Just a person who maybe in a time of weakness just said something that they shouldn't have said. And probably should have apologized for and just didn't. Um, but now the relationship is just in the gutter. You're trying to pick it up and you're trying to put it back together. Um, Paul is not interested in this. He's not about to let this happen. Paul gets out his little parchment and his feather and he dips it in the ink. He's like, all right, all right, here we go. And he, and he sends it and he'll send another one and another one. And then he'll go visit. He's all about the relationship. He's all about keeping it good and healthy and pointing out things that need to be pointed out. See, one of the things that confrontation does is it clarifies reality. Absolutely clarifies it like, no, there's no animosity. There is no um, underlying um, plot to overthrow you. Um, and ruin everything you have. Um, no, they, they were having a bad day. And they said something stupid. And you didn't confront it. And so it made the stupid thing into a monster. 
Confrontation clarifies reality. It reminds people who you are, how much you love them, and it reminds you of who they are and what you mean to them. And, we, and, and oftentimes the reason things hurt so much is because we love this person and because they love us. Uh, we love them and they love us and, 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 and we feel like this is in danger of, of being torn, but because we can't turn and face the relationship, it just continues to separate. And so another thing is that, that when you confront people, it's really empowering because what you find is problems can actually be solved. Did you know this? Like relational problems, you can like fix stuff if you, if you bring it out and talk about it. Whereas if you don't bring it out and talk about it, it, it will never get fixed. Stuff doesn't fix itself on its own. You can ignore the sound in your car all you want. It's just going to cost you more money. You're going to lose your car. <laughs> same as your marriage. Like it's the same thing. Like you have to fix this stuff. You have to talk about it. And when we don't, we lose that friend. We lose that relationship with that child. We lose our entire church. Um, it clarifies reality. It empowers you. You come to realize, you know what? Like, this happened before, and I talked to him about it, and it fixed it, so maybe I could fix it again. And you come to find that you, your, your self-confidence goes up. And what you want in a marriage is, is you, you want to build up self-confidence, right? You want, you want your other person, you want your spouse to be this confident person that says what's on their mind. You do that by creating a space of warmth. In any relationship at all, you create warmth. You allow them to say whatever, to open their heart, as Paul says, as wide as they want, and to say anything and receive it. Just receive it. Don't judge it. Don't interpret it. Just receive it. Thank them for sending it. Ponder it. Apologize where you need to apologize. Throw the rest away. It's the bits of the monster that have been created in their mind. And so what is it exactly that Paul is confronting them about? Because this is what he's doing. Well, we find that right here in the next verse. He says, they, he's talking about someone named they. They are the Judaizers. That uh, if, you're, if you're new here in our study of Galatians, um, there's these pagan sort of um, Roman citizens who are worshipers of, of these uh, you know, Greek mythological gods, as everyone was. And they come to find out the message of Jesus and how there's this entirely new way to live in this world, entirely new way to, to interact with the spiritual realm. And so they become followers of Jesus. There's no more laws. There's no more sacrifices to be made. It has all been done. It's all love and sacrifice. Uh, it's all love and, and, and grace and mercy and reconciliation and serving those around you um, and understanding that the death of Christ is how this works. And so you follow Christ and you give of yourself and, you're, and you suffer for others. Um, and then there's these people that Paul calls the Judaizers. They come in and that's the they he's talking about. The they is the Judaizers. And the Judaizers tell him, well, this message of Jesus is great and all, but God's not really, God doesn't love you because you don't keep the laws. And so I have this big list of laws. Here you go. Here's your copy. Here's your copy. Here's your copy. You need to obey all these laws. You need to cut your hair a certain way, wear certain things, um, wear your clothes a certain way. And by the way, um, mutilate parts of your body to make God happy. Um, and, and here's how Paul explains what they're doing. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So there's this thing called the inner circle, and here's a, a depiction of it that I have, that I wrote, that I drew. It's the inner circle, and they are in the circle. They are in the circle, and you are not in the circle. And the way they built this circle is the same way you would train a dog. You get food, and you give them things that they want, that they want to eat, that, that taste really good, that make them really happy. And then you kind of hold back, and then they beg for more. You say, well, I'll give you more, but you've got to do the tricks. 
You do your tricks, you're going to get more. This is how we build inner circles. Inner circles are all around us, everywhere around us. We covet them. We want to be a part of them so badly. They're, they're at our workplaces. We perceive them to be in our churches, in friend groups. Um, when you start dating somebody, their family is an inner circle. And you want so badly to be a part of that. It doesn't always go well. Um, but there's these inner circles, and they're everywhere. And it's, sometimes it's, it's some connection to some fame. Sometimes it's a connection to accomplishments, money. Um, neighborhoods create these inner circles. Um, it's how suburban people look at urban people, and urban people look at suburban people. We're in a circle, and you're not in it. This is what we do. This is part of the human experience. We are tribal. We want to create these inner circles. Um, now, the currency of the inner circle is information. Okay? There's this allure towards the inner circle. You, you feel this allure anytime you see a sign above the door that says employees only, and you're like, whatever. <laughs> I can go back there. And anytime that there's a velvet rope in Ybor City and there's all these people and there's a guy at the front, this is the inner circle. You're not in it. You can be in it. And all you, you're like, yes! Um, it's the allure of the teacher's lounge, right? Um, I, seriously, I, I, when I was a kid, the teacher's lounge was this mystical place <laughs> where conversations happened and information was passed. And if we could just get that information, um, our school experience would just somehow be better. And so uh, there was this kid in our school who, um, for some reason, spent time in a teacher's lounge at one, one day, and he heard some information. Oh, Mrs. Riddle is going on vacation, and we're going to have a, substitute, a sub next week. For some reason, this information was like super important because it came from the teacher's lounge. And so everyone, he's like, hey, come here, come here. Miss Riddle's going on vacation. There's a sub next week. No. <laughs> Means nothing to anyone. Yet this kid became like a god for a day because he had, he had ventured to the top of the mountain and gathered the sacred scrolls from the teacher's lounge and brought them down to us peons at the bottom. And this information was gold. That's the currency. And so the information gets out and it's just passed along. This is, this is how the inner circle works, right? We want the information. And we want it. Why? Because we want it to appear like we're connected to something higher than we actually are, than the rest of us. For some reason, this deep flaw in the human soul is all about exclusivity in this exclusive club. We've even turned much of our theology into this. That, that there's these gatekeepers. And that God's not doing anything unless it goes through certain traditions and certain gatekeepers. Certain denominations or presbyteries or whatever. And that we have to climb the ranks and, and be affirmed by these people. And then you can move forward with ministry. That's what uh, ordination is. Ordination is not in the Bible. I am ordained, an ordained minister. Um, ordination was something invented. Really, I think the first person ordained was Polycarp. But it's sort of a, in some way, it's a selfish sort of power play thing. I'm into deconstructing everything, by the way, just so I'll take everything apart. Ordination in itself is, is, is a power play to say this group of inner circle people has affirmed to you that you can be a part of the inner circle. They have not been affirmed, so they cannot be. And I get it, but it was never intended. Um, the idea that there's these gatekeepers and that, that somehow we are it. Um, God will do what God's going to do. God's going to call who God's going to call. He's going to reach who God's going to reach. Oftentimes, we just don't like it. 
because they haven't been educated, because they don't, they don't line up, they don't match up. But that person that we despise because they're not part of the inner circle is going to go on to do incredible things, and you're going to write them off. Um, it's a deep flaw in the human heart, exclusivism. Who's in, who's out? Um, it's been written into the very fabric of our society. Now, um, that's what's being created here. There's this group of people, and, and they're in, and, and they, want the, they want the Galatians to be out, and they want to disseminate the, inform- the, the, the blessing of God to the Galatians. They want to be in control of the blessing of God, and, and everything that they do to receive sort of the blessing of God, they want it to go through them. Um, our ego is a really dangerous thing. Paul says they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. This, this is how subjugation works, is it not? This is how people fall into, um, into uh, abusive relationships, right? Uh, we flatter people, and then we remove our flattery from them and make them earn it. This is how, um, this is how children fall into gang members, fall, fall into gangs, become gang members. This is how um, religious kids become terrorists. False flattery. Someone's puffing you up and it touches your idolatry in your heart, your ego. And you desperately want that this is how adultery happens in marriages. Um, You haven't been built up, flattered for a while and suddenly someone's flattering you. And this part of our ego is incredibly destructive and deceptive and it makes you think that there's something out there that you don't have and if you can join this or you can get it from them or you can connect with them, You'll receive it. There's, I had a conversation with somebody like last week um, who has given up two, two marriages so far and, 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 and a, a girlfriend whom, whom he left. And I, I talked to him about, why are all these marriages falling apart? Why are all these relationships falling apart? What is this? He said, because they always make me choose between them and this work. I'm like, well, what's the work? Well, and, you know, people start dropping names, like famous people. Because it, it helps you feel somehow elevated. And there's this niche sort of market thing that they wanted to do. And to feel like they were part of an inner circle of Hollywood or something. And so they gave up actual, actual important things that have always mattered in humanity. For fake things. That aren't even real. That we've constructed these inner circles. And it creates the illusion that there's something here that if I can get it, it will give me meaning in life. It'll give me purpose. But it's, it's, it's a lie. It's not real. It's not really there. And so, um, it's this desire for flattery and praise that can easily lead us into bondage over and over and over again. Um, a month ago, I read to you a quote by, uh, by a man named Richard Rohr. And, and it was a quote that I've been quoting to myself constantly. Because it... it it shifts, it shifts something in my brain when I think about it. It's a very simple quote, and I'll put it up here again. It says, true holiness is never self-conscious. And I've, you know, going into a situation, you know, what if they don't like it? What if it doesn't go well? What if this fails? What, why are they saying this about me? How can I control what they say about me? How can I control how they respond? If they don't like it, I want them to like it, what I'm doing. And so I want to actually, it's not just that I want to create content and give it. I, I want to control how they receive it. True holiness is never self-conscious. Holiness comes from this, comes, the word holy comes from this, this Greek word hagios, which means different. It sort of means otherworldly. It means spiritual realm. 
uh, it, has, it has this idea. Um, it's different. It's not, it's outside of our normal mode of thinking. It's a high spiritual thing. It's the things of God. The things of God have nothing to do with self-consciousness. It's not about you. It's not about how you are received by people. It's just you responding in the right moment in the right way. So yes, Paul loses this chance to speak in Pamphylia. Um, and all he can do is respond. And he goes to these people and he, he's having seizures and they should be spitting on him. And they didn't. And all he has is his response. He can't control how other people... Something else is obviously in control of all that. True holiness is never self-conscious. Jesus. One thing that Jesus did was he viciously attacked the concept of the inner circle. If Jesus were here today in the flesh and there were inner circles inviting him to be a part of them, he would have nothing to do with it. He never has. He attacked the inner circle. He went in right into this group of Pharisees and he said, you guys are a brood of vipers. He lays out this list of all the things they're doing to other people to oppress them. And he says, and you take your thumb and you, you push it on them and you push them down, weigh them down with all these laws and you won't lift a finger to make their life easier. And I know why. He says, because you control them. All, all through scriptures from the very beginning, there has been this idea that that is not what God intends. God intends to tabernacle with you closely. God and you, the, most, the highest thing in existence, and you together with no mediators, no intermediaries. That has always been the plan. There's this passage that we talked about last year in Deuteronomy 30, and I wanted to remind you of it again. It says, turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. So um, first off, it talks about it's the things of your heart that you really want. Turn those towards these higher things. The things in your mind, the things that you think about, turn those towards higher things, the things of God. The things of love. God is love. That turns to just the highest things you can think of. God himself. And then he says, for this command that I am requiring of you today is not too overwhelming for you, nor is it beyond reach. In verse 12, he says, it's not in the heavens to make you say, who will go up to the heavens for us and get it for us and enable us to hear it so that we may observe it. He says, it's people are telling you that, that there's, you need someone to go do this for you, to connect you to God. That you need someone else. Um, one thing that I try to be aware of, and, and, and my own wife has brought this to my attention, that like, I love context of scriptures. I love to dive in and, and study like, the original context, but oftentimes it creates this illusion that like, the normal person can't read the Bible on their own. I want to destroy that thought. You read you study, you do as much study as you can, as much contextual work as you can, I believe God will fill in the rest for you if you have a heart that is open. There is no gatekeeper. I'm not a gatekeeper. I have thoughts and ideas. I have a relationship with God. I talk to you about it every week. But there is, it's, it's not some high lofty thing up in the skies. He says, no, it, it's not there. And then, and then he gets the next verse in, in, in verse 13. He says, and it's not across the sea to make you say, who will go across the sea and get it for us and get it for us and, and enable us to hear it so that we may observe it. It's not. It's not far away. Verse 14, because the thing is very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your mind to observe it. See, today I have put before you life and well-being, death and trouble. 
He says, the thing that you want, there's not some inner circle group of people that can give it to you. Um, Yes, I know, I understand there's people you want to impress. There's people that you would love to just be a part of their circle, their their communion, their their friendship, because it seems like they have something that you don't. But what happens is you get there, and perhaps you found this, you get there and you realize there's nothing there. And you keep climbing the ladders of these, of these institutions. And you get to the very top and you realize, oh, well, I'm going to get the top. Everyone's below me. There's nothing up here. I need to look across the way and there's another tower that goes even higher in another organization. I'm going to go over there. You spend your life doing this. You spend your life doing this. And what happens is you end up being 55, calling your son who's full grown. And you say, hey, I know I wasn't there for your childhood. I'm sorry I missed it. I see that I was wrong. Can we try again? The answer is no. It's too late. There is no inner circle. Stop chasing it. The thing that you need is there. It's here. It's not across the sea for somebody to go get it for you. There's not some journey you need to go on. There's nothing. You're not missing anything. God is here. Everything you need is here with with you. And you're okay. There's no gatekeeper. Verse 18 through 20, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This is the second time he's, he's referred to his audience as his little children. He says, he says, I'm going through a lot of pain sort of to, to bring you to where I think you need to be, but I look at it as a, as a mother giving birth to a child. This is pain I have to go through. He understands the gospel. He understands that the pain that we go through to bring new life to save people is necessary. This is how salvation works. My little children, for whom uh, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and exchange my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So this is, he, he thinks about one day, I'm, I'm going to be with you again, and, and when I get with you, uh, when we're together, I, I want our relationship to be good. That's why I write these letters. That's why I do these things. I care about our future. So one of the important things that people need to remember is, is a, a, a good way to gauge your health of spirituality, of your physical life, of your relationships, of your marriage, of your relationship with your children is where you are right now, where, the way you've been living the last week or two or month or whatever, if you play that forward and if you don't change anything and if you play that tape forward 20 years, what does it look like? Is this relationship, does it still exist? Do you have everything you've always wanted? Are you even alive anymore? How does this go? If we play the tape forward, there's... Uh, Dr. John Townsend says the, the extent to which two people in a relationship can bring up and resolve issues is a critical marker of the soundness of the relationship. Gauge your relationship right now. Can you bring things up? Do you have in, your, in our church, in our community, in, in your workspace, your employees, your, your spouse, your children, do you have this space where they can say anything that they want? And you can say anything that you want and there's this agreement that like our words and our views and our thoughts about each other are important and I will receive what you have and, and I, I will give you what I have. Open my heart up wide. Pour it out. Because if you can't do that, if you can't bring up and resolve issues, your relationship is not sound. And if you play that tape forward, it doesn't end well. Too many people separate after their children leave the house because they realize they don't know each other anymore. And no doubt when Paul is speaking 
about how flattering they are, the Judaizers are to them, and how they're saying good things to them, and he's saying kind of hurtful things to them. Um, I'm sure as a rabbi, he remembers the book of Proverbs 27, 6, wounds from a friend can be trusted. When an enemy multiplies kisses, maybe there's somebody that's speaking to you in your life and saying, hey, you're being really, really dumb in what you are doing, and you hate them for it. It's possible that they love you incredibly deeply, and they're saying things to you because they love you, because they, in their minds, have played your tape forward, and they know it doesn't end well. They know it doesn't end well. And you are incapable of, of, of being self-aware and seeing this for yourself. We have to be honest with each other. We have to speak the truth. We have to, this is how we build intense love. This is how we build intimacy. You want passion? Build intimacy. It's the only way there. The only path to passion is intimacy. That's it. Nothing is more miserable than, than, than to be in a relationship with someone yet be disconnected from them at the same time because it doesn't feel right, because it isn't right. The picture of Christianity is a God who sees that he is disconnected from us. And the only answer is to turn towards this relationship, to enter physically into it, and to enter into intense pain to bring it back from the dead, to bring about the resurrection that is necessary. Yes, the conversations hurt. Yes, it hurt when, when, when Jesus suffered for you as well. This is the gospel. The gospel tells us and gives us a command and a responsibility to follow Jesus. That means you confront things. That means you enter into painful conversations. That means um, you need to change how you look at the world around you and maybe the inner circles that have rejected you and maybe your own view of yourself and your self-confidence. There's so much at play here. And maybe it's a reminder that the thing that you are going through, like Paul, has a purpose which you will never know. And to say, well, you know what? From dust I came and dust I'm going to return. Glory to God. God knows what he's doing. And I'm just going to, I'm going to be at peace in it. Can't change it. So we're going to take communion. Communion is an important thing. If, if you are one of our communion servers, go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room if you would. Um, there's two elements in communion. They're common things. There's bread and there's wine. Communion at the root of this idea is the word common. Finding Jesus in very common things. It's just bread, it's just wine. But you can look at it and you can see the message of Jesus in it. And, and this exercise helps us daily see Jesus in everything that we do. In our own sickness, contracting malaria, we can see the gospel in it. In the confrontation of, of the people who need to hear what we have to say, there's the gospel in that. There's the, there's the there's Jesus taking the pain and charging into it to bring about resurrection of this dead thing. Um, in everyday common things, we can see the message of Jesus. And we take their sins upon ourselves for their healing in the same way that Jesus suffered, died, was buried, and rose again to bring about our salvation. So our communion service, you guys can come on forward, take some time. Um, to ponder all of this this morning. If there's something you need to make right, if there's a conversation you need to have, have it. Actually, I believe it's the book of Hebrews that specifically says, if you are offering um, sacrifices on the altar and it comes to your mind an offense to a brother, drop your sacrifices, run and talk to your brother, confess, ask for forgiveness, whether they give it or not, and then come back and resume your sacrifices. Because reconciliation with each other is apparently more important than our sacrifices to Jesus. Yes, that's true. 
So let's pray and ponder these things, shall we? Father, we love you. Thank you for who you are and what you're doing in our midst. Bless these, uh, these times together. We love you. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.